Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about the economy, stupid. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. In a test to see if we could avert a civilization-ending disaster, yeah, NASA it wouldn't be s- that bad. Well, <laughs> ask the dinosaurs. <laughs> NASA successfully rammed a spacecraft into an asteroid about 6.8 million miles away from the Earth. Hashtag science. The goal of this project is to see if we were able to shift the asteroid even slightly off course. If NASA detects that it has changed the trajectory of the asteroid, the test will be a success. This particular asteroid was not heading towards Earth specifically. However, it was the size of a football stadium, which was adequate for NASA's test. The spacecraft rammed into the asteroid only 17 meters off center at 14,000 miles per hour. Nice. (laughs) What we've witnessed here is the beginning of NASA's planetary defense project that that would protect Earth from a collision with an asteroid. It will take days or weeks before we know if the asteroid has slightly changed course. Terrell? Do you have any thoughts on this science experiment? Honestly, the first thing I thought about was what if they mismeasured and the way that they hit the asteroid in space actually directs it towards Earth? <laughs> Just because like that would, of course, be the inevitable turnout of Why not, right? everything that's happened in 2022. No, it was super fascinating, especially like to, I mean, we've talked about this offline. Growing up, I was a NASA nerd. I used to go to all their camps. I wanted to be an astronaut um all the things about understanding space and time so it's just really fascinating to me anytime nasa is able to make these big projects and do these things especially because their funding is so inadequate um following several administrations but um it's just kind of funny like i'm picturing being in the room and cheering as this um spacecraft that millions of individuals have just worked on and figured out well not millions but you know what i mean um do i and everyone's cheering that it just ran into an asteroid and exploded yeah i like they showed the video of like the the control room and everyone's cheering as it like runs into the asteroid which is funny yeah um i saw a tweet (laughs) that said um, that this just proves that there is an asteroid directly coming at Earth and NASA is just not telling us about it. <laughs> I mean, again, that's essentially what I said. I think we just ended up sending it closer to Earth than it was before. I don't know. But also, like, <laughs> controversial opinion here. I'm one of those humans who sometimes just believes in fate and things. And while I'm appreciative that we are doing work to protect ourselves, like, Look at all the harm we're causing to the planet. Look at how far we have fallen in geopolitics. Granted, this is a great example of what happens when an international community can come together because a lot of countries helped invest in the science and pieces to make this possible. But if an asteroid's coming, like eh, maybe it's not worth the argument to scramble to produce the Armageddon version of a film to protect us. Like, I come into a very weird space here of there's only so much that humans can do to continue to prolong its existence on this planet. At a certain point, we have to just face facts. And if things are going to happen, things are going to happen. Yeah. But what I will say 
in agreement with you, but a little bit of a different angle. Fair is I'm I'm a true believer that if we actually like invest in space and in a space race, it'll lift everybody else up in terms of technological advances. And so like like I really do think that like the more we invest in space, the more we develop technologies for it, the more they can be applied to Earth and hopefully even um I don't know, saving the earth from climate change and global catastrophe or not necessarily the earth, but like things that live like us. Um, so yeah, that's my angle on it. <laughs> so it was kind of, kind of a cool thing to just see over the weekend. I figured you would be excited by it. Let's check out the international fold. Continuing our coverage of the Ukraine Russian war, Russian men are fleeing the country in defiance of President Vladimir Putin's calls for up to 300,000 reservists to join in combat. The rather abrupt shift in recruitment has shaken the country with thousands of men receiving draft notices the day after Putin's speech. Meanwhile, as a second means of recruitment, Russian forces are rounding up men um, in Ukraine to help fight against the Ukrainian military, their home. This all rests on the backdrop of Putin's orchestrated referendum in the occupied regions of Ukraine um, that he's hoping to use as justification for further escalating, for further escalation as the world both condemn, condemns and ignores the results expected to be announced on Tuesday. This would result in Russia annexing upwards of 15% of Ukraine overnight. While jarring, the desperation by Russian President Vladimir Putin continues to have leaders on edge as Putin continues to threaten nuclear response if any other nation involves himself in the conflict. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to follow the conflict taking place in Ukraine and update you as we learn more. Check out our Facebook and Twitter pages for updates throughout the week. Okay, so normally right now, this is where I would say like, oh, let's get into some headlines around the world. But there is enough breaking news that I think we should do an internet to international folds this episode. Will they both be under a minute? No. <laughs> um, well, maybe. Who knows? We'll see. Uh-huh. But I do think we should like take a quick sneak peek at some major developments that are happening around the globe. As a show of defiance towards the United States, Russia has granted Edward Snowden citizenship in the country. Italy's neo-fascist party wins a plurality of votes after many Italians stayed home in protest, thrusting the country into uncertainty under their new far-right prime minister. Important note here, with a near-final vote, um, it shows that the center-right coalition is netting about 45% of the parliamentary vote. However, the Brothers of Italy, the neo-Nazi far-right group, snatched 26%. Um, all of this hinges on one of the lowest turnouts Italy's ever had, with about 64% of eligible um, voters actually voting in this election. The United States Vice President travels to Japan to attend the service for former Prime Minister Abe. This trip also entails a growing act by the United States to reassure allies as tension grows with China. And we'll be right back. Staying above the international fold, on Saturday, Iranian officials announced they would begin restricting internet access as protests continue to break out following the death of 22-year-old woman Masha Amini in the custody of Iran's morality police after being beaten by them while in custody. For our listeners, 
the Islamic Republic has strict rules on dress behavior and mixing between the sexes in public. Women's freedom is particularly curtailed, as Miss Amini's case shows. Her offense was reportedly wearing a loose hijab, and the morality police are kind of the government's um, enforcers of these rules. Anti-government demonstrations have spread to dozens of cities, with the government announcing 17 deaths as of Thursday. These protests have seen a high number of women going as far as ripping off and burning their head coverings or even cutting their hair in public. On Thursday, the Revolutionary Guard, Iran's most powerful security force, issued a statement describing the demonstrations as sedition and saying they needed to be crushed to teach others a lesson. Caleb, like many things in modern days, we are seeing TikTok and Twitter as an outlet for protesters to elevate their message or even keep the world informed. Um, what are some of your initial thoughts on the story? I know we talked about it offline. Yeah, so this is really interesting. And like, I've listened to like a little bit of um, uh, Ben Rhodes and Tommy Vitor, um, who used to be uh, foreign advisors to President Obama. I've listened to some of their takes on it. I've read some stories about this. And it's like, there's been protests in Iran. There's been a few of them over the last couple decades. And there's been some big ones. And every single time Iran has absolutely squashed it, like shot live rounds into the crowd. They're doing that now. Um, They're not, they don't put up with it. And it's cruel and it's terrifying. And now is no exception. But what's different about now or what seems different is it's not just, um, it's not just like the the younger generation. It's not just the, even the poorer people in the country um, that are rising up. They're also like finding a lot of alliance with I, Iran's elite too. It seems that all the demographics in Iran are actually kind of united this time. So it could be different. We'll see what happens. But that seems to be the big difference now. And the general vibe seems to be look, our economy has been crushed, some of that because of U.S. sanctions, but because Iran likes to do bad things in the world. Mm -hmm. And like, we can't make a living. We live with low standards of living. And like, now you have this morality police, which sounds like something out of the book 1984, um, like coming in. And even if they see like a loose hair out of um, a hijab or something like they're going to beat you. Mm -hmm. They're going to teach you a lesson in a cruel way. And sometimes you're going to die. And that's what happened here. And this was the tipping point, right? Is they don't have the vibe is that there's nothing else to live for in the country. Yeah. And so why not go risk my life for something better? And that's kind of, that seems to be what the vibe is. And that's really interesting. Um, they have, Iran has been limiting internet access in the country, but it is notable that, uh, Joe Biden authorized, um, um, Elon Musk's Starlink satellites to deliver internet to the Iranian people kind of over the head of the Iranian government, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's it's funny that you mentioned that too, because one of the pieces that Iran's been bringing up is that the U.S. is actually supporting these rioters and trying to destabilize the nation, um, going as far to say that this is just going to be another unsuccessful attempt by the country. And that juxtaposition of what we know to be true and this totalitarian oppressive government trying to utilize a country in my personal opinion that is struggling to find its identity again is just really 
fascinating, especially when you have a president stepping in and authorizing a private entity to provide access so that the world can continue to see the message and continue to hold this government accountable. Yeah. And it's like, it's not only that, like when you have the vibe of like, what else is there to live for? Like Iran had like the view of elections where the people could somewhat choose Mm -hmm. it. Like, could they really choose? That's debatable. Um, especially when the candidates that they were allowed to choose from were already like pre-approved by the government about who could run for president in that country. But the last election, they like Iran elected this really like super far right guy um, that the Supreme leader basically wanted. And, and they did it like more, it was more blatantly like they didn't give pre-approved candidates. They Mm kind of just said, yep, that guy's the president. Sorry. And so like, there really is, even if there was like this facade of you could vote, um, that was gone in the last election. Like it, you really didn't have any power. And so the general vibe of that country is like, what what are we doing here? Like, why are we living without like this? We've been oppressed and suppressed and there's just nothing really else worth living for than to try to, I don't know, reform Iran. And this is also coming on some um, reports that uh, the Supreme Leader might be in poor health. So that's really interesting, too. Yeah. And we'll be right back. And we're back with Dangerously Likely. So... I'm just going to apologize ahead of time, y'all, because this is going to be a long intro to the economy. And it felt like we've talked about the economy in the past. The economy is so simple. What could you possibly have to explain? <laughs> I, I This time around, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot more to talk about. You know, there's a little bit. There's quite a bit of fear, not a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Quite a bit of fear of a looming recession. So we're going to get into it. So in perhaps a shift in the news cycle, the economy seems to be taking a turn for the worse as the S&P 500 hits its lowest level of 2020 as the global sell-off continues. Most of this is fueled by the prediction that the global economy is about to take a major hit. And although it seems investors afraid of this are the ones fueling that hit, (laughs) there are some recent factors that don't look too great. So lots of the fear that has driven stock markets around the world to drop, including the S&P 500, which has now dropped more than 23% this year, is coming from the actions of central banks, which have raised interest rates to fight inflation. The purpose of doing this is to decrease demand slash spending by consumers and businesses. The Federal Reserve has specifically signaled its intention to continue to raise interest rates to get inflation under control, no matter the effects, which will most likely be higher unemployment and slower economic growth, mm-hmm. or that seems to be the historical conventional wisdom. Some of this stubborn inflation is a result of the Russian uh, Ukrainian war, since Russian energy fueled a lot of Europe before they abruptly invaded Ukraine unprovoked. But the actions of central b- banks is really what is driving the fear around the global, around a potential global recession as of recently. When the Federal Reserve raises interest rates to fight inflation, the effects are, as I mentioned before, higher unemployment and lower economic growth for the U.S. economy. However, its effects are much more profound than that. Increasing our interest rates also increases the value of the dollar, which is good for the U.S., but pretty bad for basically everyone else in the world. Yeah. In fact, the increasing value of the dollar is actually part of the fuel for Britain's and Europe's inflation. 
Our strong dollar is also pushing up the price of imports, including fuel, food, medicine, and more. For countries facing starvation risks like Somalia, those increased import prices are kind of devastating. A strong dollar also pushes countries that have a lot of debt, like Argentina, closer to defaulting defaulting on that debt, and it discourages foreign investments in emerging markets like India. How does the U.S. dollar have such a profound effect? Well, 40% of the world's transactions are made with the U.S. dollar, even if the U.S. is not part of those transactions. It is the world's reserve currency. It is mainly used around the world to price goods like food and energy and to settle accounts between banks. And because we decided not to use the gold standard, but that's neither here nor there. Yes. <laughs> the dollar is also a symbol of stability and security. When things get bad, more people actually buy dollars, pushing up the value even more. This happens even if the U.S. economy is not doing well, because it's still usually doing better than other places in the world, mm -hmm. which is kind of mm -hmm. crazy. And it's actually like it is crazy to think about how this works. The New York Times had an interesting comparison about taking $100 and converting it to other currencies today versus a year ago. One year ago, 100 U.S. dollars cost about 1,572 Egyptian pounds. That Those two equaled each other. Mm -hmm. Now, take that $100 today, but assume there was 0% inflation. The strength of that U.S. dollar makes those make, is now worth uh, 1,950 Egyptian pounds. And that's basically like 400 Egyptian pounds more. And that's before you even factor in inflation. The U.S. is basically exporting inflation because when the dollar is strong, U.S. imports are cheaper, which helps fight inflation for us, but our exports are more expensive to other countries, and that helps feed their inflation. So, Terrell, what are your initial thoughts about this? I mean, it seems like the news cycle kind of went bad over the last week in terms of the economy. Like, it's kind of been bad for a while, but yeah. it felt like there was a good news cycle with Dems doing stuff, and now it's like... Economy. <laughs> no, I think it was always this way, right? Like we've had a couple conversations around the economy and around fears of uh, a potential recession, whether or not the Fed is doing what it's supposed to do with raising inflation rates. Uh, we had that one um, great above the fold where we kind of dived into the fact that the chairman essentially said he was willing to take the economy to a recession um, if it meant that inflation went down and was better for the economy long term. And I, even in that conversation, we always questioned if this was the right move, right? Um, I think for me, kind of how you kicked off this segment, the focus on what things traditionally mean versus our inability to own the fact that a lot has happened in under two years. Uh, we have seen one of the worst turns for our supply chain. We have seen a global power, whether you want to count them that, as that or not, in Russia invading a country and some of the harshest economic sanctions our modern times have ever seen on a, a very important power. Like they sit on the um, United Nations Security Council. You can't ignore their status in the world. Whether they're strong is a whole other argument. But and you've seen the retaliation. Europe is currently going through one of the worst energy crises it has ever been through after following some of the most catastrophic climate change issues we've ever seen. So there's so many compounding factors that I'm curious, and I'm going to push this back on you, Caleb, if the issue isn't so much the need to tame down inflation and use all of these methods as we have. But if the issue is the fact there's no nuance in our approach to this, the Fed feels like they're only 
action, our only way of going about it is raising interest rates rather than owning the fact that executives have been profiting off of a pandemic and have walked around or walked away with some of the highest um, raises they have ever had. So I'm curious about your take on that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting, like, I I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts about this, like, mostly because like, it's crazy that so the US like the financial center of the world, the capital of the world is the United States. And like, it's interesting, because like, just like how the economy affects like certain demographics here, like, more than others, it's the same thing with countries too. like many countries that are not in like a preferred financial state are in a bad spot, because, you know, we're in an unprecedented time. We've never been in this situation, like at all. We've never had a pandemic or like with this kind of supply chain, with this kind of globalization before. And then of course the Russian thing is like also kind of unprecedented for our modern time. And many countries are that don't have a great financial um, uh, backing are in a like kind of a bad spot because, you know, when it came to the pandemic, they ran above average debts to deal with that mm-hmm. and make sure that they were protecting their citizens. And now they are actually facing pressure to offer even more public support, even as inflation starts to run high. And the U.S. dollar is not helping with that at all, because that means spending more money. Yeah. And I, I don't know, like, I, there was a time not that long ago because it was within two years. <laughs> yeah, two <laughs> years in modern, two years within the last two years feels like 40. So I'll, I'll give you a long time ago. Yeah, seriously. So 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when the pandemic hit, a lot of people just kind of rethought like their lives. Yeah. And you saw a lot of people quit. A lot of people transition into new roles. A lot of people kind of, you know, remote work is a big thing. It still kind of is um, to an extent. I still work from home. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, like, there was kind of this realization around uh, uh, the country and maybe the world about what am I doing with my life? And what can I do to like, I don't know, have a better one to change up what I was doing before that wasn't, you know, when I think back, not that great. And, you know, we're seeing, like you said, like, this, the economy is not doing great. You're seeing, like, executives get more money more and more money and it just feels like we're headed to like this great reset and i don't know what that means or what that looks like is it a big recession that really hurts maybe people that aren't um marginalized or uh financially uh burdened maybe it hurts elites more i don't know what it is but it feels like and maybe this is globally that that we're kind of headed somewhere that I don't know what the pain level is going to look like. I yeah. have no idea, but it feels like we're on the cusp of like, maybe. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it is a great reset, right? Like we've, we've talked about this too, of the division between main street and wall street and how specifically during the pandemic, the chasm between the two has just felt worse. And I know one of the big things that is coming out right now is President Biden's um, student loan forgiveness will cost, what, $400 billion, something like that. Yeah. And I actually wanted to talk to you about that, too. I mean, I think this is kind of an inopportune time for this to come out when you have all the news saying bad economy. So I wanted to ask your thoughts about that. Yeah. And I think I think that's the point, right, is I think 
for one of the first times in a while, Main Street is finally starting to get some of the investments that it needs to, to thrive and survive. You had the child tax credit that pulled half of children in poverty out of poverty. You have uh, a government that recognized because of the pauses on student loans, that is one of the reasons the American economy was able to rally as fast as it did. Now we're going to make an opportunity to maybe not forgive as much as people want, but we're going to forgive something because people shouldn't be burdened by this debt, especially with inflation. Um, you you highlighted so, so well, people transitioning out of their previous jobs for better opportunities to move up in employment because of the experience that they had or to find better wages. And you have companies offering higher wages to retain and keep staff. So it, it feels like even though Wall Street didn't want it, Main Street is finally getting a little bit of the investment that it needs. I mean, look at the um, the rail worker strike that was averted because they were just asking for paid holiday. Well, not paid holidays. They were just asking for more time off so they could go to the doctor. Like, But on the other end, you're watching as Wall Street is having some of the worst months it has had in two, three years. And you're seeing a lot of, again, that traditional view of, well, if Wall Street is struggling, that means our economy is about to crash and we're about to see the worst of the worst. But what you're actually seeing is a is those execs that bankrolled off of our pain and our suffering as we were going through a pandemic. Wow, I sound like AOC. Um, <laughs> you're seeing them fill that pinch while you're seeing more of your average Americans because we're not invested in the stock market, because we're not ingrained in the economy to that degree still managing fine but nervous of what can come and i i'm very taken aback by that piece of um maybe we are on the precipice of a hard reset where we're going to see a recession that hits more of your elites your people who didn't feel the pain or pressure during the pandemic while main street somehow manages to to survive well, yeah, I mean, and there's this other news story that was kind of buried in this. Hmm. Um, and there's a couple points I want to make here. This other news story is like manufacturing in the U.S. is actually like having the best boom since like the 70s. Like the policies of the administration are working. They're working. And there's people in manufacturing. There's more jobs in it. And it, more stuff is being made in the U.S. than for a long time. This is like a really big deal, but it's mm -hmm. kind of, you know. When the stock market goes down, that's bad, which, but is it? It depends, I think. I, I can Highly, agree with highly, that. highly depends. But As like, I had a whole argument about more nuance in this argument, that is a great response. Yes. Like the, the stock market is really a, just a very reactionary like entity. It's reacting to these higher interest rates. So that's kind of like when you see a stock market react one way, it's like, why are they reacting? And then the root problem like either is yeah. doesn't really matter or it does and the interest rate thing might matter um at least to some industries and it definitely matters to the rest of the world because of our strong u.s dollar but i also want to say i really just want to make this clear because that 400 billion dollars that the student um debt forgiveness student loan forgiveness is going to cost is spread out spread out over 10 years yeah and that's something that i think is always lost that's not costing 400 billion dollars today it's over 10 years and it probably doesn't have as that like a huge impact to inflation, like some people might make it out to me. But also, I think another very important context to that on the student loan piece is that was an investment. Yes. To make an argument that it's going to cost us $400 billion, where are we going to get that money from? That was an investment in a generation to be where we are in the workforce today. 
if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, and this is where my policy comes out, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, you then have to take into account how much work that generation and that group that you've now measured has invested into the economy. And what I would genuinely argue is you would see that actually this is going to inevitably cost America nothing. Like it, it was an Probably investment gain from it, honestly. Yeah, it's going to be a major gain because you think about most individuals who are receiving um, that loan forgiveness, work full-time jobs, have been in the economy for X amount of years. All of that is a positive increase that they've given to it. Whether or not they paid back their loan completely is a different argument. So I do think it's very important, as you highlighted, Caleb, to not take that $400 billion at face value because it is a very well-constructed manipulation to this student loan issue that we we just aren't talking about in the appropriate way. Well, then, but also I, I, I want to add to that argument because it's a good one. But if you don't believe that argument, at the very least, if you are taking, if you are giving millions of Americans a few hundred bucks back a month, mm-hmm. where do you think that's going to go? First of all, like they're taxed. We all pay our taxes. And second of all, you hope that taking the burden off these people um, they're going to be able to do a little bit more, take a little bit more risk and, you know, higher risk equals higher reward. And a lot of people are probably going to be able to make career jumps that maybe they didn't feel like they could ever do before. Yeah. Or like you said, somehow yeah. invest in the U.S. economy like they haven't been able to before. And like at the very least in this 10 year period of time, people with people doing that and whatnot, like making more money, that's more taxes. You're They're going to be paying this back. Because they're going to be doing better. They're going to be more well off mm-hmm. um, because of this policy. So like the argument that this is bad for America, like it's just wrong. Yeah, it just misses the mark. It misses it. Yeah. And uh, not to play politics here. Oh, but whoa. <laughs> Why are you bringing politics into, <laughs> into this podcast of all podcasts? Why? I do think there needs to be a real conversation around the fact that these are ramifications of the tax cuts that the Republicans passed just before the pandemic. Um, Whoa, that's so political. (laughs) Those tax cuts were designed to give the Republicans a bump before an election cycle, but be paid back by the middle class over time. And kind of to your point of we might be in the, the, the precipice of a hard reset. That is, I do think, a driving factor in this that I I don't think a lot of political analysts are diving into because the Democrats, once they were able to take back the Senate, very quickly over uh, changed that. But the ramifications of two years under those tax policies did see, yes, a lot of Americans received amazing tax benefits in that first year. However, the next year, those tax benefits diminished. And then we hit a pandemic. And then the government tried to respond as quickly as it could to allow for Americans to still live their lives and still uh, have all these pieces. Uh, I, while I might hate the administration at that time, they did implement an an eviction freeze that allowed for Americans to stay in their house while they were struggling to find jobs to keep money in their pockets so that they could buy food. So as we said to start this, I, I understand the fears and the red markers a hundred percent. I see how much houses cost and just further remember that my generation, our generation might never be able to afford a house, but I do think there are a lot of big contextual pieces 
that are being left out specifically in that tax cut, specifically in the eviction um, memorandum or eviction moratorium that expired with no backdrop for people. There's so many other pieces to this puzzle that I'm just, I'm very concerned economists are missing out on because they're a little bit too focused on Wall Street and they're a little bit too um, close to the lobbyists that are inevitably trying to make sure that banks and executives are getting paid. Yes. And I want to hit two things before we end this, this main story of ours today. Um, Also, Terrell, slight challenge. I don't know. We'll see if it pans out. Slight challenge. Housing prices actually fell for the first time since 2012 in the last couple months. Yeah, but interest rates end up making it not that different. (laughs) Don't want the mortgage. So yes, challenge me all you want, but you're still wrong. That's why I said slight. (laughs) We'll see what pans out. But anyways, um, I do want to just like take a moment and recognize that like we just went into a lot of detail and like for a lot of people, this inflationary stuff like really is painful. Yeah. Like there's a lot of people who are struggling to like, you know, go to work with gas prices and go to the store to get food for their families every week because of what the prices are. And there's literally some people where the prices are different and higher every week. Mm -hmm. And that's like, like, I think we have to recognize that like, this is, it's already painful for some people and it could get worse. We don't know what it's going to be like in a few months from now. We just don't. Um, So I just wanted to recognize, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I just want to say Congress does have the power to put caps on certain industries when they recognize that their constituents are struggling. So just to highlight as we get ready for an election, um, one party is telling you that it is outrageous that you got student loan forgiveness. They're telling you that people need to have some skin in the game so that they actually produce things. They are the party that said you don't deserve a child tax credit when child care is far by and large unaffordable for many Americans. Um, I'm not saying Democrats will do it, but I will say that they're the only party right now that has actively talked about the fact that they have the power to put price caps on industries, the fact that they are actively trying to find new and creative ways with their slim majority to ensure that gas prices don't become outrageous again, specifically by calling out oil tycoons and and using the power that they had to bring more oil into the system to negotiate with OPEC. When we're having this this economic conversation and I see polls come out that say that's the number one issue for them and that's why they are considering voting Republican, I really challenge you to listen to what they say, what they talk about, especially just go and Google um, McCarthy's plan for America or his commitment to America, I think is what it's called. None of it talks about actually providing relief or trying to support Americans so that they can thrive. Um, It's all about how they can keep the Biden administration accountable and make a bunch of political points. And yeah, just know your government before you vote this November. Last but not least, I have kind of of a uh, like philosophical question. Philosophical. Jesus. You tried. Oh my God. I almost should take that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it in for my embarrassment. Um, kind of have this question for you just about the federal reserves, like dual mandate. So the federal reserve has 
like domestic mandates to basically help our economy, the U.S. economy. Um, but based off everything that like I talked about with like how the U.S. economy and what the Fed decides kind of like really affects the whole world too, mm-hmm. should the Federal Reserve have a global mandate? Yes. Whoa. Wait. We're a part of, <laughs> I, just, like, I know yeah, you just said, whoa, well, and I'm like, I have to respond now. We're a part of NATO. We have multiple global geopolitical partnerships around different industries and different areas. We're a part of the G7 and the G20. Yes, <laughs> it. we just negotiated, our Secretary of Treasury just helped to negotiate a cap on corporate tax rates so that no country can be a safe haven for corporations at 15%. If we are truly going to be, I had to be really careful about this, especially what happened in Italy. But if we're truly going to be the brokers of what the future of this world looks like, and especially when we're recognizing how climate's impacting every single nation, yes, there does need to be an understanding that, um, our reserve should be considering international pieces and also just a recognition that as we continue to try to fix things at home, our our focus on America can sometimes end up causing more harm to America by making it harder for, let's say, one of our biggest exporters, China, um, to not only purchase our goods and help balance our budget, but also import goods to us. And ensure that we have food to serve. One of the reasons our supply chain was so bad is because uh, the cost to import became an issue, specifically under the last administration. So, yes, absolutely. Hard stop. Yeah, I mean, like, it's really interesting. I just, I'm not going to lie, like, the mandates of the Fed seem a little bit outdated. Keep inflation under control. Keep employment low. Like, like that seems pretty simple. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that. This is a tough question because like, I think this is one question that can be like debated and I don't know if there's a ton of wrong answers to it. Yeah, I agree. Because like, it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, like our own central bank should obviously be watching out for us. But at the same time, there's got to be a better system of like regulating and controlling the global economy. And the Fed probably should be a part of that somehow. Um, and so should other central banks. And like they are, but like, it's not specifically mandated. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It was just an interesting, just an interesting question to end on. But anyways, we'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen for notifications of our new episodes and the opportunity to leave us some comments and ratings. Take us on a tangent, Caleb. Thanks, Terrell. So mine's going to be quick. <laughs> it's just disappointing. It's Idaho. Uh, it's Idaho. <laughs> so there's uh, an article that came out in the uh um, Idaho Statesman, the newspaper here in Boise today. Um, uh, the article is by Becca Savransky. I don't know if I said that right, you but did. sweet. Um, basically, the story is about the University of Idaho uh, sent out a memo to all its employees from its general counsel division. And it basically said um, the laws of abortion in Idaho are pretty unclear. 
but we recommend against like talking about abortion or even birth control. And if you do or like try to refer students to an abortion or even uh, give emergency contraception, um, you could get a misdemeanor or a felony in this state. And so like, I don't know, like in Idaho, I'm not generally genuinely surprised that this is happening. It's just like, do better, do better. It's more, um, yeah, it's, it's just getting, it's getting worse. And that's like, of course, this is like based off a zombie law from the seventies or something like that. Um, and it's only in effect now because Dobbs was overturned. And so it's not like, even completely in effect yet because the Supreme Court keeps ruling different ways, different times. Like it's not fully in effect if I remember correctly. Yeah. And it's like, I just fully I, like, that's why it's like so important to vote for the right people. And like, I know the Supreme Court's not someone you can vote for, but you can vote for but, the people who replace the judges. Yeah. And like, I, <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Like this stuff is this is so like they're doubling down like the state, like different states and stuff and Republican leaders are like doubling down on like taking abortion rights away. And that's like a fundamental right that they're taking away. And like, I don't know. It's just, it's so fucked up. And I don't know, Charles, do you have, do you have thoughts? I was like, not to like steal your tangent, but I think no, steal <laughs> it. please. Um, Cause I have my own I can't too. say good words right now. I'm just pissed. I just, I think it's comical. Not comical, that's not the right word. I think it's concerning. That's actually the word I want to use. That of all the universities to do this, the University of Idaho is the one making this move. Um, for context for our listeners who are not from the state, um, obviously all of our state schools, University of Idaho, Idaho State, and Boise State are funded through the legislature. And um, for those who are unaware, just before the pandemic, um, Boise State got a new president, a group of Republican um, representatives in our state house sent her a letter, told her not to do diversity, equity, inclusion things, or they would cut our budget. Um, our, I don't even work there anymore. Long story short, we get to the point where the budget gets brought up and they do actually cut $400 million out of the budget saying that that was being used for diversity, equity, inclusion. Meanwhile, as Boise state highlighted, the university of Idaho had a whole page to black lives matter and the importance of listening to people's stories and understanding differences in all these pieces. The difference is University of Idaho normally gets off in the state and they have a super large endowment because they're one of the oldest state schools here. They're actually older than the state, fun fact. So it's very concerning that a school that's normally pretty insulated from politics feels that this is different and they need to step in and actively try to bow down is the only word I can think of to the legislature. And it's just a very clear ramification of where Idaho is and how in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Genuinely. Yeah. I mean, like obviously like different States choose different things, but like this is a national decision that caused this. Unfortunately. Anyways, Terrell, um, take us on a tangent. Uh, mine's actually going to also be just going ham on the Republicans. Um, specifically because there's some big news that came out that we weren't able to cover in Above the Fold, but the January 6th committee has been going off in the easiest way to explain it. They actually postponed a hearing that was going to take place this week, um, citing um, Hurricane Ian. Um, but some of the information has already kind of 
been allowed to be said by the committee. So we're aware. One of the big pieces that I don't think is being talked about enough is the fact that the committee has proof that the White House switchboard was getting calls from individual individuals in the Capitol while they were attacking the Capitol. They don't know who they were talking to in the White House, but they can prove that they were talking to someone in the in the Capitol. I I think back to I wasn't able to be on this pod, but I think back to the conversation that you and Torrance had around um, the president's calls for protecting democracy, the manga party, all of that. And I watch as more and more clear as day information comes out to prove not only did the White House more than likely help plan and orchestrate this insurrection, but also they were actively trying to ensure that it was covered up. Another piece of that is the FBI, um, a secret service specifically, excuse me, the Secret Service finally turned over a group of emails that they are not emails, text messages that they weren't able to find before. There's still several missing, but it shows a clear cover up from the Secret Service. Nice. Crazy fucking shit. It's not only that. It's we know that come November, if Republicans end up winning the House, they are going to scrap the entire January 6th committee. They're going to start investigating Joe Biden for they already said they're going to attempt to try to impeach him. Marjorie Taylor Greene says she has it written already. Um, you have the Hunter Biden BS, and you just have this complete disillusionment of reality. And I know it's easy to blame Fox News. I know it's easy to say that representatives need to be holding more people accountable, but I really am just infuriated right now because there's no more that reality can show. You have the the Dobbs decision, you have what's happening in Idaho, you have two governors in Texas and Florida sending migrants and potentially human trafficking just to make a political statement. You have all of these pieces to prove that this party is not trying to do anything productive while also actively trying to cover up the fact that they were willing to overthrow the U.S. government. And yet there is still a possibility that they will win a majority of votes this November. And I'm angry about it. And now the vice chair for the January 6th committee is has lost her primary. So she's no longer going to be there regardless of what happens. I just, I don't understand how we move forward in a country in, in a country that just doesn't seem to care. The, the signs are there. You have Italy who just elected its neo-Nazi party to run it. You have older individuals holding up signs saying, I live during Mussolini. I don't want to die during um, this regime. And there's still people pretending like we're not there. Like we're not actively there. And it's just infuriating. It's really going to take all of us. We'll see. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's our show. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.